0: Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me, as always, is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski.
1: Hello, everybody, and a happy new year! Yes, a happy new year and brand new year of shows, twenty twenty, <laughs> um, the roaring twenties. Barbara Walters. That's right. Um, so, what do you think we should talk about in you know this very first episode of the very uh, of this year any ideas Um, any questions any ideas
0: well it's january january yeah Uh, cold cold yes cold
1: well (laughs) what do you got in store so i uh i was thinking about what you know what we could talk about because we got lots and lots of shows in the lineup but um for this week i kind of wanted to dig into some of my favorite stories of like pittsburgh characters from the past so there's um Many famous Pittsburghers, of course, like, you know, Andrew Carnegie and Frick and Andy Warhol and and uh, you, you name it, you know, left and right. You know, there's famous Pittsburghers. Uh, but there's also Pittsburghers who are not necessarily famous or uh, maybe once were famous, but have since lost kind of that fame and uh, lost their notoriety and have become kind of a, uh, a figment of Pittsburgh's past uh including uh the first guy which we'll talk about which um his story was a uh was even unknown to people at his own time period okay <laughs> which was uh the 1800s here and um uh, it was a uh it, you come across different people that uh, sometimes in the paper have like a nice big obituary you know a nice big write up and you're like wow I didn't know this guy who this guy was or this guy even existed or or maybe I only knew him for one thing and yet He's famous for so much else that uh, that nobody knew. I mean, these were sort of things that you could finally reveal in an obituary, and that is basically what uh, this first guy named the Double X Cough Drop Man uh, is going to be about. And now, I, I wanted to dig into tales of three Pittsburghers or people who uh, eventually settled in Pittsburgh. You know, because uh, you could you could say lots of things about lots of different people, but a lot of people weren't born in Pittsburgh, like. I was thinking about maybe doing George uh, Ferris, you know, the guy who invented the Ferris wheel. Um, Not born in Pittsburgh. Well, neither was Gustav Whitehead. Neither was Gustav Whitehead, right? Neither was, uh, you know, any of the most famous hockey players to play for the teams. (laughs) You know, what you did here in Pittsburgh matters, and it's a big difference. Carnegie, you know, prime example. uh, Pittsburgh is what developed him as a man and uh, what drove him for the rest of his life, and that's the same thing that goes with all of these three people. Pittsburgh was the underlying and kind of the thing that ties it all together, even though these people live in different centuries, uh, that underlying theme of Pittsburgh's innovation and uh, weirdness and inspiration. <laughs> and I say weirdness because um, this guy uh, I'm going to first talk about
0: is the definition of what you would call odd. Well, if his name is double X cough drop man, <laughs> I think we're in for a treat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's dive into the story. Uh, this first one of the double X Cough drop man of Pittsburgh. So imagine yourself right in the corner of downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, this is the 19th century, okay, and you see a man standing on the corner, and he's uh, has a, he's very tall. He's got a stove pipe hat, a buffalo skin fur coat, a peg leg,
0: and a bushy beard. Is it a stove pipe hat or a stove top hat? You know, I wonder myself. I believe it is stove because I always thought it was Abraham Lincoln wore a stove top hat. That's right. Or maybe I'm thinking of stove top stuffing. Stuffing. Yeah. Either or I I, I like it. <laughs> so He wore um, a big hat. He
1: wore a big tall hat. There you go. Okay. It was tall. Like man. Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. Like Abraham Lincoln. Except this guy had a buffalo skin fur coat and a peg leg and a big old bushy beard. That's how most people in Pittsburgh remembered him. Now, when I say they remembered him, I mean this guy was a legendary figure in downtown Pittsburgh. He was similar to uh Bob Lansbury that we talked about previously, where um you know, everybody knew that guy who had signs, you know, that would walk around downtown Pittsburgh. But, you know, who was this guy? Like, you might not see him, but who is he? Okay, and nobody knew.
0: Well, that's like the in the uh, 90s, uh, late 90s, and there was the guy in Oakland, the sombrero sombrero guy. Right. Who would wear, he wore a sombrero, sombrero and was asking for change. Right, right. And he yeah. had a little boom box next to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, like,
1: You you know, most people recognize these type of people, but nobody really knows who they are. And that was the case for this guy. His real name, Charles Orton. Okay. Um, better known as the double X cough drop man, sold cough drops, rain or shine, at the corner of market street and diamond street and downtown Pittsburgh. And uh, he did this fact, uh, you know, selling these cough drops for over 40 years. Was Diamond Street still there? Or no. Has it been Diamond Street turned into Market Street eventually. So it was okay. like the – but at, one, at that time period, there were two separate streets. So
0: now it will be Market Street and Market Street. Basically,
1: <laughs> yeah. Basically, the end of Market Square is where his shop kind of sat. Uh, Market Square has always been there. It used to be called Diamond, uh, you know, the Diamond. or And they had different uh, streets that were named around, like North Diamond, East Diamond, West Diamond, eventually called North Market, South Market, East Market, so on and so forth. Um but somewhere around that corner, near Market Square, this guy for 40 years sold these weird cough drops, you know, from a wooden box, um, and and that was basically it. it. He was just seen as a strange and unusual guy, peg leg and all, uh, who would you know happily sell these things. Well, not until he died did people finally find out the real story behind this man, Orton Charles Orton, born in Allegheny City in 1846. Okay. Prior to his cough drop career, he dabbled in several different diverse areas of study, including tightrope walking, (laughs) acting, was one of the original riders for the Pony Express. At 14 14 years old, he enlisted to fight in the Civil War, okay, when he was 14. uh, Was, of course, too young, and he was turned away, but he later rejoined the Army as a drummer boy uh, until his parents found him and eventually forced him to move back home and Uh, only for him to run away and join the circus (laughs) okay during this time of the circus he performed as a comedian he was an actor and that's where he practiced his tightrope walking this also led to uh, him driving wagons across the plains he became a railway brakeman which is where how he lost his leg well what's what's railway Uh, brakeman uh well brakeman uh which uh i've done a lot of genealogy I'm, i'm fascinated by family trees and and a lot of family trees, you see people that work for the railroad, and they all had different types of jobs. And one of the most common jobs you'll see on there is a the thing called brake man, which at first I had no idea what that is either. Like, what's a brake man? You know, what what's that do? Well, back prior to the Westinghouse air brakes, each single car of a train had to be stopped manually by hand. And these people, they called brake men, would ride the cars either on top of the car or like next to it. And uh, when time would come, we'd have to apply the brakes to that car. Or jump from car to car to apply the brakes. One of the most dangerous positions that was known in the railroad industry. And in fact, if you fell off uh, and just like fell into a ditch somewhere, they just leave you there. <laughs> so well, they couldn't stop. I mean, they it couldn't take, stop.
0: Yeah, it, it takes a mile. Yeah, right now, still for trains today to to stop. So yeah. if if there's a a car stalled at an intersection. And you see the train, it's too late because oh, yeah. they can't stop. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, that's the, why you know, Wessinghouse invented his air brake, is because of that. The tragedies were so immense during that time period leading up to the invention of the air brake, uh, which solved, basically solved that problem.
0: Well, you also mentioned he was part of the Pony Express. <laughs> yeah. Which <laughs> was is it, such an interesting part of U.S. history because it only lasted about two years, if that. Yeah. And it was. Somebody would be on a horse or a pony for 10 miles, mm-hmm. and they'd go to a stop, and then they would drop off to the next rider, Right. and 10 miles. So it was 10 miles, 10 miles, 10 miles, all the way to the West Coast. Yeah. That's insane. It 10 is. miles. It is I insane. mean, you do 10 yeah. miles in, you know, a couple minutes now on, on the parkway or in the, in the turnpike. Well, yeah. not the parkway. Oh, yeah. This traffic
1: like on foot, you know, well, you know, fast, you know, as fast as you possibly could because messenger service, I mean- it, while it was revolutionary
0: well it was it's, because it's you odd to get, think about it today you would yeah. get a letter in under a month instead of right you know years <laughs> yeah, years
1: for letters yeah of course <laughs> you know but still yes um you, you know b- back in those time periods it was not easy to get mail i mean if you were going to address mail to pittsburgh or like say you lived anywhere you know in within the metropolitan area of pittsburgh you know the letters were addressed to like john Sholkoski, pittsburgh pa and that's it yeah so you just had to get that letter somehow to Pittsburgh and then you know shuffle it off into where it needed to go and it was a complicated process no doubt about that and uh we're lucky we're very lucky to live i'm sure people 100 years from now will say like i can't believe these these old people I mean you know they they actually emailed people you know
0: <laughs> so well, we so i mean we live in we live by the zip code which is you know yeah, the zone improvement yeah. plan which is each number represents something yeah and you know and uh, even that's
1: not that old i mean that that came around the 1960s the zip codes uh one five by the way meaning uh the state code mm-hmm. pennsylvania you know uh interesting stuff but anyways <laughs> back from the pony express which is fascinating i mean i'm sure who knows i mean no one really knows this full story i mean these are like the little things that were gathered but in his obituary um after he joined the circus and became a comedian an actor tightrope walker um and of course did his whole uh break man and um and doing the Pony Express, he also, uh, went shooting and performed with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show (laughs) and, uh, also was in the original, acted in the original production of Uncle Tom's Cabin. (laughs) So, and this guy for 40 years selling cough drops in the middle of downtown Pittsburgh. Um, he was such a natural, just everything he tried. One day he wanted, there's a direct quote I found in, in the newspaper. One day he decided I wanted to do this. And he would just go off and do it, no matter how strange or outrageous a skill it was. Uh, this type of person he was. Uh, with a desire to settle down, he eventually got married and moved back to Pittsburgh. And while coming back on a trip from to Philadelphia, he saw how the cough drop industry was booming there and decided to bring that industry to Pittsburgh, where he opened up a little small shop and eventually sold to the streets selling cough drops. So he wasn't homeless. No, he looked like it. Um, he had that weird big beaver coat or whatever, buffalo skin cur- coat, and the had yeah, that peg leg, you know, which gives him a
0: little bit of character. Well, I mean, compared to today, if you saw, and we'll post this photo on kdkradio.com, but if you look at him today, you would say he's not homeless. He doesn't <laughs> need any help. But at the time, yeah, that was the common, you know. Well, yeah, you look. think that
1: someone's selling, you know, cough drops for two bucks a, uh, you know, a, a bushel <laughs> or something. It's like, uh, you know, what what else might be going on in their life that they're they're now doing this for forty years. Uh, apparently, a lot was going on in this guy's life. Uh, his nickname, Double X, by the way, he got because he ran for political office and failed, and people felt he was double-crossed, so they called him the Double Crossed or Double X man. That's the origin of the name. It's not because it's like uh, you know liquor or something else in, inside the cough drop. I was gonna say that sounds like like in, a dirty uh, cough drop. It sounds like, like an awesome
0: hip hop name today. Yeah, Double, Double X. X.
1: Yeah, exactly, Double X. Well, you all well, you'll see from the photo. Um, Just all cool that actually does look, you know, when he posted on his little cough drop uh, thing, you know. But uh, this is just one example of, like, one of the stories that just kind of, you know, lost the time. These stories that you would not find about unless someone actually took a photo of the guy and cared enough to figure out who he was.
0: Well, it it also, you know, raises the question of when you see, I know that um, Double X wasn't a homeless person, but when you see a homeless person, you just dismiss them as somebody that doesn't have a job and they don't have. Yeah, you don't it see together, them together, but you don't know what they've been through. Right, right. I mean, exactly. this, this gentleman here, Pony Express, circus. Yeah, I mean that's insane. Like those old, are all
1: stories. Drummer boy and the Civil War, you know, and uh, I so, mean, it goes on and on and on this guy's life story. And it's like, it's it, even his time with Buffalo Bill and <laughs> traveling around that Wild West show. I mean, think about how cool that would have been. Or acting in the very first production of Uncle Dom's Cabin.
0: I mean he kind of looks in the picture you'll see he kind of looks like sir ian mckellen a little bit he <laughs> does yeah. a very distinguished man with a peg leg yeah and a giant beaver coat selling cough drops <laughs> exactly which what would you know maybe today he'd be selling i don't know cell phones <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. basically the cell phone man of pittsburgh uh
1: well hey you know you never know maybe one of these people have a story to tell that uh has yet to be untold so um Go ahead and uh, make sure you look at these uh, hidden figures because, I mean, this guy, I I found out about him from a photograph. I mean, that was it. I was just like, well, what is a double X? You know, who is this man, this weird, interesting looking guy? Um, He looks like he could be like the grandfather of like Mr. Odd,
0: right? Or maybe that is Mr. Odd. I don't know, you know? Well, you told us when we started this journey that you were going to unveil the ways that you find these figures. Yeah. And I think is that one of the ways, like if an obituary is a little bit extended yeah, or you see a photo of something like that, is that what catches your attention? Uh, well,
1: I'll, I'll give you a prime example when we get to our third story and I'll tell you exactly how I found that story because that's the most fresh in my memory uh, of how I came across that, you know, what inspired me to, to look them up in the first place. Because a lot of these people, you know, they're on Wikipedia, maybe not Wikipedia, you know, just Google search, you're not gonna find too much about them. Um, even old newspapers, you're not going to find too much about them. So it's like it takes someone as a catalyst to kind of put it somewhere for people like me 100 years later <laughs> to stumble across it and dig into it more. Now that technology's caught up, yeah, we have the availability to go, kind of go in there, dig up things that have not been able to be found before, and, um, and look at it from new light. So our second tale involves a legendary figure who uh, a lot of people might only know. Because one of the, uh, the halls at the University of Pittsburgh is named after him, and that is Holland Hall. But have you ever heard, other than the fact that i we mentioned it once before in our very first episode of the Pittsburgh podcast, the prehistoric episode, the name William Jacob Holland? Right, yeah. So he's kind of somebody who I've never really knew of, other than the fact that he um, apparently in 1921 discovered gigantic nine-foot-tall people living in Verona. That's from the first episode. <laughs> from the first episode. Um, so if you haven't heard about some of his finds, archaeological finds, here in Pittsburgh, uh, along with many other tales, check out that very, very first episode of the Pittsburgh podcast, the prehistoric Pittsburgh. But William Jacob Holland uh, was the curator of the Carnegie Museum, and uh, he was also the chancellor at University of Pittsburgh. So. Uh, These are not spoiler alerts because these are kind of commonly known things, uh, at least to the academic world, um, that this guy named William Holland was indeed the very first, I guess you could say, official. Technically, there was another director of the Carnegie Museum, a very first one, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you ready for what happened to him? He was part of the archaeological dig in McKee's Rocks during the Indian burial mound in 1896. And uh, while trying, that, that was his very first, like, gig as the curator of the new, the brand new museum, you know, that Carnegie was putting together, and he decided to uh, uh, kind of camp out there on McKee's Rocks in the burial mound, and while there, uh, not only digging up uh, 30-something people uh, who were buried on top of the mound, uh, but it was considered cursed, and uh, so much so that lightning struck, there was a rainstorm one day, and everyone's in their tents, lightning struck And it killed one of the men instantly inside the tent that he was standing in and he considered this like obviously a bad omen you know and quit the next day uh so that was the very first director of the carnegie museum do we know his name frank garadette was his name um so you know what do you do afterwards you know uh, who do you get next you know who's going to follow up where do you go from here (laughs) right you know when the first director is almost killed by an act of god right Hey, the last
0: guy got scared away by a curse. How would you like? Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, Well, enter the picture this man, William Jacob Holland. He was born, son of a preacher, uh, born in Jamaica in 1848. Son of a preacher man. Son of a preacher man from Jamaica, Mon. Jamaica. (laughs) Yes. 1848. Okay. He attended a Moravian boys' school where he went the later to Amherst College, the class of 1869, and then later Princeton Theological Seminary. But while at Amherst, one of the colleges he was at, his roommate was a student from Japan. And he just kind of became real fascinated with Japanese culture and language and just, you know, getting to know a little bit about Japan. This is the 1870s, okay, and decided to learn Japanese for himself and became fluent in Japanese in the 1870s.
0: Okay, so even today I'm impressed if anybody <laughs> exactly. becomes fluent in Japanese or any language.
1: Yeah, especially this this man from Jamaica. Um in eighteen seventy four he moves back to Pittsburgh. Um and uh through kind of a a long um you know, I mean he had a religious background, so you know, and he went to that theological school, Princeton's theological school of all of all schools. And uh you kind of move, you know, where there's an opening. So in eighteen seventy four there was an opening in Oakland. At the Bellfield Presbyterian Church, and he became the head pastor, and that was that was his job. That's what he wanted to do. You know, he was kind of brought up to do this. Um, spent, you know, his parents did this kind of the similar type of thing, and now he wanted to take his uh, hand at becoming a pastor of a church. But in his spare time, you ready for this, he taught ancient languages at Chatham University, uh, which at that time, um, and joined up with the naturalist. Expedition called the U.S. Eclipse Expedition in 1887 to explore Japan. Since he was already fluent, you know, it was pretty easy for him to go do. Um, now, this uh, Eclipse Expedition was basically a uh, uh, an expedition to go on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean towards Japan and view the eclipse from a boat. Uh, this is apparently a big famous one in 1887. They needed representatives from all different states, all different types of uh, fields, you know. And uh, and he went on this trip. Brashier actually helped put him on that boat. John yeah. Brashier. John another yeah. former good old uh, uh, Uncle John episode. That's right. That's right. So he had a little bit of uh, kind of working his ways within Pittsburgh, higher ups like people like John Brashier, and and ran into Andrew Carnegie multiple times. And people knew of him because this guy was so kind of out there with um, his interests, you know, teaching ancient languages, and you know, on the side, you know, all his Japanese type of thing
0: where um so he not only knew Japanese but he knew ancient languages that were kind of like out of date
1: yeah like sanskrit and all that type of thing you know
0: um but his
1: main interest in life and this really throughout his entire life until the day he died was a uh, a thing and uh, and I looked up the pronunciation of it so lepidopterology <laughs> Lep, lepidopterology Lepidepterology, and that is the study of butterflies and moths. So this is what really fascinated him. You know,
0: somebody that studies that is going to correct us. The pit, the pit, enough. <laughs> butterfly studying—that's
1: <laughs> what he was an expert at.
0: <laughs> we're going to have a butterfly studier tell us <laughs> we're saying it wrong. Oh, I'm sure and we will. Hopefully, I'm sure we will. You can correct us.
1: Uh, but he, uh, you know, also kind of became
0: fascinated in paleontology, and. Um, and can you tell us what paleontology is real quick?
1: Well, uh, it's the study of the ancient past, you know, through archaeology, uh, specifically dinosaurs. And uh, there was one big dinosaur that he was kind of responsible for. And, uh, but let's before we jump to that, 1901, I don't know how, and it's unclear really through the history books, I, looked, I tried to look it up, how Andrew Carnegie found him and picked him as to become the new director, but he did. Uh, I guess this guy just had a way with words or something. I mean, this pastor who was an ancient language teacher who studied butterflies on the side is now the brand-new director of the Carnegie Museum. He sounds Uh, qualified enough for me. (laughs) Yeah. uh, He would remain that until 1922, his retirement. So for 21 years, he was the the director of the museum. Um, But he was the guy who supervised the dig and also was able... Uh, bring the Diplodocus or Diplodocus, depending on which uh, side of the aisle you stand on, (laughs) um, and uh, was able to bring that to Pittsburgh, which is the technical, scientifical name of the the one that's here in Carnegie, I mean, in the Carnegie Museum, is called the Diplodocus Carnegie, like with an I-I at the very end. Dippy. Dippy, that's right. That is Dippy the dinosaur right there, but that's the same one. That's the original, the first, most complete Diplodocus- Diplodocus, (laughs) whatever. And I say this whatever because if you look at the origin of the word, uh, it comes from two words, two separate words. Diplos, meaning double, and docus, meaning beam, double beam. That's what diplodocus, as two words, would be. We should just Google it and see what they say. Google will tell you. Diplodocus, even though if you translate from the Greek, those two words, it is
0: diplodocus. Well, uh, we also know. say north for sales when it should be north for size. So. Yeah, I'm going gonna,
1: I'm gonna to call that a Pittsburgher thing. I don't know. Pittsburghese? Is, is Diplodocus a Pittsburghese thing? I don't, I don't think know. so. I don't think so. I don't hey, know. we
0: went down to Permian, so we got some of <laughs> that Diplodocus.
1: Yeah, exactly. You, you think that would be it, right? But he, uh, while studying um, you know, like all the ancient languages, he also ended up getting a job at the University of Pittsburgh where he started, for some reason, without any kind of background, teaching anatomy and zoology. Until finally he was so well diverse in his uh skills that he became the eighth chancellor at the University of Pittsburgh in eighteen ninety one.
0: Well, he sounds like kind of a prodigy. Yeah. Yeah. He learned Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Ancient languages. All these other things. Zoology,
1: anatomy, you know, uh all the the eclipse expedition, you know, all these different little things. Uh when by the time he died, which was in uh, he was eighty four years old, uh, he passed away, he was living at 55, 45. Forbes Avenue, uh, the place is no longer there, but it's basically across the street from Carnegie Mellon University today, and he's buried in Allegheny Cemetery, and uh, he donated all of his uh, specimens, personal collection, not, you know, the museum's collection, his own personal collection of over 250,000 butterflies and moths to the museum, which are still there to on display to this day. Yeah, you can see them. That's right. Those were his. (laughs) I don't know where he kept them, but those uh, were his, and he was the guy who did find that and put that all together. And uh, it's just interesting figure. So I mean, that's kind of like what this episode's you know themed is about. It's about these interesting figures, these people who were like, you know, you might know him as like the name of, you know, the chancellor of University of Pittsburgh because of Holland Hall. You might might have known his name as just the director of the Carnegie Museum, but.
0: But you don't know why. I didn't know this guy was from Jamaica, some I mean, kind of pastor, some all these other things, you know. 145 years before Cool Runnings became a movie, this guy was the director. Yeah. yeah. Born in Jamaica, director of the Carnegie Museum.
1: That's right. That's right. Very interesting stuff. I mean, you'll see a picture. I have a couple of photos of him, which are pretty cool. And uh, Yeah, we'll it, post those too. He, of course, um, you know, was involved in that 1921 um, Giants of Allegheny uh, story. So go back and listen to that. But. I try to save the best for last. In fact, I kind of want to do a little series of shows like this where I talk about, like, three or four different Pittsburghers who you might not know. Uh, People like George, you know, uh, Ferris. You know, his story, while tragic, he died in his 30s, you know, the guy who did that. But uh, there's lots of stories to share, and this one really fascinated me. It still does. There's still more to the story, which is not... I I hope so. We're talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I found it fascinating enough to at least... uh, do the research, do the digging. And this is the one I'm going to tell you about how I was inspired to talk about it, or just even just learn about who it is. Uh like you said before, like we've talked about in other shows, um I'll spend a lot of free time just searching Google, you know, uh basically for um interesting Pittsburgh related things. Now, that path could lead me to places that normally would not lead you if you're going to study Pittsburgh history. Most people if you think about Pittsburgh history, you're going to start with, you know, right here in Pittsburgh. You're going to look at the Carnegie Museum. You're going to look at the Heinz History Center. You're going to look at these local, you know, places first, then maybe newspaper research, uh, then maybe genealogy research. Cause that's part of history. Um, and those records and documents tell you a lot about a person. Um, but this, uh, came about when I was searching in a, uh, the San Diego public library. So one of the tricks to finding the good stuff, okay, is to not look in Pittsburgh. That's a uh, a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, you know, but the, the, the it's not a bad thing because what's happened is people throughout time, you know, would move to California, let's say, you know, these, aunt, the descendants of, or someone related to this, this next person we're talking about, moved to California, I guess, passed away in the 1950s and then just left a bunch of piles of photos and documents and things in their house and whatever. And eventually somebody just donated it to the public library and they took the effort to scan it and post it online. and that is where I first heard and first saw a picture of a woman named Helen Ritchie. So now does the name ring any bells? No. Right. So, and that that is a complete shame because this woman is legendary. I'm sorry. Well, (laughs) it's not your fault. That's the thing. Uh, Nobody. There's one book, one single book that was written in the 1960s, long after she passed away, uh, that tried to kind of piece together little – bits and pieces of her life based on interviews with her family that were still surviving and and friends and people that knew her uh but there's no real biography nothing ever really put together other than the fact of the the different things and accomplishments that she kind of did uh not until you really start digging into the newspapers and trying to see kind of what's left or um, find out what's still out there do you discover this amazing story of this woman uh a, a first in pittsburgh Now. Uh, the fir- first photo, by the way, I saw of her is her as a very young girl, uh, 19 years old, uh, just learning. You know, she's dressing up in her first pilot's album. You know, uh, you know, in her first pilot's license uh, kind of outfit.
0: And um, yeah, she has the leather helmet, the leather the, helmet, and then and the the goggles,
1: goggles. You know, the leather jackets. You know, and and then as I start going through other photos, I find photos of her when she was a little bit younger, like 15 to 20, and uh, you could just tell by the photograph that this wasn't some kind of ordinary girl. She wasn't just some kind of... There was something in her eyes. And I, I'm I'm being honest. That's how I've discovered this person. I looked at her photo, and I'm like, there's something behind these eyes that I must know. Well, let's learn about her. Right. Helen Ritchie was born to fly, okay, number one. Uh, 1920 years old, She is when she first learned how to fly the airplane. Born in McKeesport, okay, in 1909. She was the youngest of five kids to the superintendent of McKeesport's public schools. Uh, in 1928, uh, the McKeesport native was a passenger on a daily flight from McKeesport to Cleveland. And that took, uh, kind of gave her the inspiration of just being on a plane. I mean, even think about this, 1928, you know, prior to that, the only way you're going to get an airplane is if you're the Red Baron in World War One. You know, you're not going to likely have lots of commercial airline experience. Uh, com- in fact, commercial airlining uh, was just kind of in its infancy uh, of actually bringing passengers on an airplane and transporting them to different places,
0: but she yeah I- this wasn't I'm sorry, but this wasn't soon after um, Charles Lindbergh's flight. That's, cr- that's so correct. So this isn't yeah <laughs> this isn't you're waiting in line at TSA at the airport. This is yeah. <laughs> you're getting on an airplane and yeah, let's, let's hope-, hope you make it <laughs>
1: exactly. You know, so of course that was the exact uh, impression that her father had, and uh, although her father. Uh, being the man he was, it was very um, generous, you know, to her and and let her, her his youngest daughter, uh, kind of get away with anything she really wanted to do. And uh, he signed her up for flying lessons. Now, during the, she wasn't the first female pli- pilot. I mean, as soon as people were flying airplanes, women were doing it too. You just don't hear about them that often. Uh, not unless they accomplished
0: some kind of feat
1: or some kind of big historic thing or
0: something. Amelia, Ar- Amelia Earhart.
1: Right, you're disappeared. (laughs) You know, Um, but she was famous before that, right? But would you know uh, the same amount of information about her if she didn't disappear? And that's the kind of the well, that's the question. Like same thing with this Helen Ritchie. Like her accomplishments were just as fantastic and even more groundbreaking than some of Amelia Earhart's uh, exact uh, same things. They in fact competed together on teams. Uh, (laughs) I'm getting ahead of the story, anyways. She uh, saw a very famous female pilot named Ruth Elder, okay, on this trip. I've never heard of. Right, right, yeah. There's, there's a lot of them. Uh, in fact, my grandmother told me that when she was a little girl, there was a one of these f- famous female pilots, uh, I guess, came to their apartment used to hang out with her mother, and uh, she'd always remembered her being there in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, and how cool it was that she was like a, a female pilot, you know, and just how neat that must be. Um, because it was definitely a man's world. Uh, in fact, it still is. Can you name, have you ever been on a plane that has a female
0: pilot? Not Even, that I know of. Right. I haven't been on many planes, but.
1: I've been on plenty of planes and I've not seen too many head pilots. Uh, I'm sure they exist. You know, I'm just saying you, you don't, it's not a common It's a shame. Thing. It is. Uh, you know, we just got over saying female stewardess, you know. Uh and, and uh, you know, with just uh female you know, with just personnel, you know, on an airplane. So uh we're still kind of you know, getting into that uh, you know <laughs> even though in the nineteen twenties of you know, two thousand
0: twenty, yeah. Even though in the nineteen twenties, a hundred years ago That's right. we had female pilots that could kick butt. Well,
1: and Helen Ritchie was the star of that show. On October twenty seventh, nineteen twenty nine, she started taking flying flying lessons. Uh, Within months, okay, by June, she had her pilot's license. Within a few months after that, she traveled to Johnsonburg to participate in the dedication of an airport, right, and to watch a kind of nice aerial exhibit. While there, okay, because she just had her pilot's license, even though she had less than 30 hours of flying, time actually in the air, flying the airplane, okay, (laughs) um, convinced or somehow talked her way with her charm, into uh, letting her uh, let the people test an airplane and just and she was just going to take it up and kind of circle around the field and then come back and land it. And that was going to be that, you know, and, and whatever it is, that's what it is. So instead, she gets up in the airplane. Okay. She circles the field a few times. And then instead of landing, she decides to test the limits of the plane by doing a complete upside down loop a loop de loop. A loop de loop. That's right. Um, then she decided to rise up to almost 3,000 feet. Okay, elevation, cut the engine and go into a tailspin barrel roll straight toward the ground. <laughs> um, it gets close to 2,000 feet, right, to the ground. Then she gets to 1,000 feet, which is not that high up for yeah. our airplanes. Uh, then she decided she knew how to, you know, swing the full rudder into the, the, the opposite direction kind of and uh, put the mo- motor in full throttle, pulled up, and was able to straighten out the airplane right at the last second. Of course, this made people... Just scream, <laughs> you know, they didn't know what was going on. Like this this tiny little girl. <laughs> she was tiny, she was four foot ten, four foot eleven, maybe at the most, you know, on a good day. Um, under five feet tall. Nineteen year old girl from a key PA, right? Doing these crazy barrel rolls and loop de loops all over the place. And she hasn't even been in the air for less than a day. Okay. <laughs> That's how she started out. Uh so when you start from way up there, where do you go from there?
0: Yeah. You know, uh, um Yeah, well after that, what what do you have?
1: She really had this dream to become a commercial pilot, like like one that would, you know, uh, fly people around. Uh, also, even just uh, like a FedEx pilot, you know, one that would fly stuff, you know, from here to there. <laughs> and on December 4th, 1930, she became the very first woman in American history to achieve this record of the very first commercial pilot as a female.
0: And how how common was this for even anybody to have not common status, status. <laughs> not common not common uh in fact uh she
1: uh, basically did this just because of the way she looked and the way she acted and the, her kind of spunk and personality uh which is which is what i noticed from her photos i mean that's what i draw me to her was her photograph without knowing anything about her i just saw the photo of her and i'm like well th- i didn't even know who this person is because they're obviously a fascinating person sure enough you know um she is so she uh not only does this gets her first you know the very first commercial pilot license in in history as a woman uh but then she's wanted to set out records okay for speed and endurance after becoming the very first woman in allegheny county to even earn a pilot's license <laughs> okay so that's where she technically fits into the, the history of pittsburgh is that she is helen Ritchie, the very first woman ever have a pilot's license in Allegheny County um but one of her fine no no when when you talk about like records and endurance type of things you know you're talking about uh you know most flights go up you know if you're going to go from here Pittsburgh to Los Angeles it's going to take you four and a half five hours
0: yeah you know on a good day and you're going up like what 35,000 some feet right
1: imagine staying in the air for a week that was her goal without
0: landing okay how's that possible
1: by refueling the plane while in the air. Herself? Yes. <laughs> and now ready for this? In uh, 1933, she joined another famous uh, female pilot named Frances Harold Marsalis and set the woman's, uh, the actual woman's flight endurance record remaining aloft for nine days, 21 hours, and 50 minutes. <laughs> I don't think those planes had bathrooms back then. They didn't. <laughs> so they took off on December 20th and landed on December 30th. Oh, my goodness. On the third day of the journey, a refueling hose ripped out of a hole in the rear of the plane's fabric and she had to climb out into the wing mid-flight with a needle and thread and sew it up herself. <laughs> now, there's a photograph of this happening, actually, uh, if you Google Helen Ritchie. Well, how do they have the, the photograph? Uh, because it was, such, it was like an event, you know, like these, they would set, they'd, they'd let the press go oh, so beforehand. Oh, so they had, okay. It'd be like, so hey, we're going to be the longest, them. yeah. And uh, now I'm sure they not all, you know, 24-7 all day long following yeah. them, but at certain times they did. And that particular photograph uh, does exist. So basically a hero in the female commercial world, you know, of the, of the piloting world, but not a hero in aviation. Uh, Because... Aviation at that time was very, very controlled and very, very sexist.
0: Oh, that sounds a women. lot like
1: now. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, with all this happening, okay, she she would go to national air meets. You know, for women, she would give more demonstrations, you know, daredevil stunts. Uh, it's not every day that, this you know, a girl wants to become a stunt pilot like from day one. <laughs> okay? No, yeah. You know, not... rips into a barrel, you know, before you even knew how to fly a plane, really. Um, but in 1934, she successfully became uh, – there was a Greensburg-based company, okay, called Central Ili- uh, Airlines. And they uh, she convinced them somehow to give them a commercial pilot license. And
0: she became the first woman in the world to ever do this. And she would be like, uh, we're approaching the <laughs> final destination. I'm going to do a couple of rolls, <laughs> and then we're going to cut the engines, and let's see what happens, folks.
1: <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's there's a story about – she, um uh, one of the kind of charming stories is that, uh, she had a nephew, uh, who was about, you know, 10 years old or so. And, uh, she, she never liked to actually fly with people when she was doing these things, uh, you know, these barrel runs and all that type of stuff, except with her dog,
0: who she would keep as her co-pilot. Yeah. Because I mean, if he goes, then, you know, what you I guess, do?
1: you know, and a little, you know, commit, you know, some companionship, you know, there while you're in the skies and, um, but she would do things like her uh, her niece actually was going to college and she she told her niece I was like well I'll just fly you down you know um, but then uh, she'd have weird nicknames for people she in fact called her niece Nancy McSlap Cabbage. <laughs>
0: it's a direct quote. It sounds kind of racist. I don't know. <laughs> McSlap Cabbage. Nancy McSlapcabbage Cabbage over here.
1: <laughs> Some weird things. She would called her uh, her nephew Poopy Face. <laughs> so. Uh, but her nephew, uh, who was quoted in the Pittsburgh Post Gazette Who had poop all over his face. <laughs> right. <clears throat> in the nineteen sixties was quoted, uh, saying that he remembered as a kid going off and uh hanging out with his, his uh his aunt, uh, who wasn't much older than her himself. He was only ten years old, maybe younger than her, uh, and decided to uh go off these kind of like week, you know, day-long excursions where they'd fly out of Allegheny County and just show up in butler somewhere and land some airfield and have a picnic and then fly back home and he said that one time during this flight she she did the same was like hey you want to try flying the plane what he's like well i'm only 10 you know i don't know how to fly fly the plane and she let go of the controls goes here you go (laughs) and just walked apparently stood up and walked to the back of the plane (laughs) right um that's kind of like a joke knowing that it was going to go out of control and she was going to correct it somehow uh, this, she was a daredevil, I mean, it's just crazy daredevil, you know. Well,
0: how confident do you have to be to be a daredevil and super have your
1: confident. nephew? <laughs> yes, super confident. Um, she imbued confidence. I mean, just the photographs of her, each one, you could tell she's a confident woman. Um, you know, not alone in these kind of, like, woman's first things and, 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 you know, world first weren't her goal. She wasn't trying to set out to become these things. That's just... No, it she just sounds it was, like who
0: she was, right. So she was it you wasn't know? it didn't matter. I mean, sex wasn't a thing. It was just this yeah. was her
1: well, you know, pretty soon uh, after she became the actual first woman commercial pilot uh, for Central Airlines, she did fly to uh, washington d c uh, and and to Detroit, a direct route, which means she had to cross the Allegheny Mountains being the first woman to ever do so. Um, but <laughs> there's a union involved, you know, when it comes to airline pilots and The all-male pilot's union was super angry at the fact that she got this license in 1934. Uh, Because of the controversy, the airline started sending her on less and less trips. And by by the time of eight months, uh, she was refused membership in the union and resigned from her airline job by 1935. Okay, even though she became the first woman in the world to rate as an airline instructor, okay, the following year, first person to teach other people how to fly a plane, Uh, as a female, officially, uh, where she ended up training people for the U.S. Air Force. Okay. And
0: when you say people, you probably mean men.
1: Men. That's right. Yeah. Now, you know, when you're in that kind of small group of people, uh, female aviators, and by the way, she never, and they would call her an aviatrix in the papers, and uh, she made a big point to never, ever go by an aviatrix or whatever. She just wanted to be pilot, you know? Yeah. Uh, didn't want to be anything other than, you know, what she was, not some kind of unique female thing um or terminology. She didn't like that terminology of calling her an aviatrix. Um so you you'd meet other people that were involved in the same type of field that you were in, of course. And what other famous female pilot can you even think of? There's only one really, you yeah, know. Remember. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Him well, yeah. too. Her <laughs> too. Amelia Earhart. Right. Um, and sure enough, they competed in races, which means that you would go up in a plane and try to compete as fast as you possibly can to complete like a course return and successfully land. And she would actually co-pilot their Lockheed aircraft uh, for a cross-country race with Amelia Earhart in 1939. Uh, and they finished in fifth place. Fifth place. Fifth place. But this was against, uh, this was open to anybody that Everybody. wanted to do it. Yeah, exactly. So you're competing against some of the, the big, bigwigs, you know, who've been doing this for years. Uh, You know, where this is, within a decade, uh, the very first female pilots ever. You know, so you're talking about a, a different type
0: of, uh, you know, situation. Which yeah, this is, is less than a decade after she started Literally flying, flying. yeah.
1: Uh, you know, owing to come and, uh, you know, to team up with Amelia Earhart herself. And uh, now there was many different communications back and forth between the two um they had a really great friendship uh, a friendship that some say that they might have been lovers mm-hmm. uh is no way you know another way of putting it um she uh both of them you know had uh, were kind of interested in men but uh it was also clear from the photographs and from some of the writing that uh they did have some kind of mutual attraction to each other so it was a uh it was interesting to see kind of how that worked out and what happened to you know what it what was Helen's response when Amelia Earhart disappeared. Yeah. Did she disappear? What happened? You know, what no one knows. And everyone's still debating it to this day. Um but you know, life goes on, right? So what do you do after you're you're not allowed to join the union of the being a commercial pilot? The only goal she really ever wanted to do. She did do airmail, um, and would fly airmail back and forth, you know, as her passenger. Well, like I guess you
0: could say the the uh, equivalent of the Pony Express, only in an airplane. That's right. That's it right. all comes full circle.
1: And uh, believe it or not, I was able to track down, and it was hard. And I've been looking for a long time. I should have brought it so you could see it, but I have a autographed piece of mail from Helen Ritchie that she well, we'll flew over. Yeah, yeah. That she flew over. You know, the uh, uh, the course of uh, doing one of these airmail trips, and it's from 1930. The very first year that she learned how to fly, it's fantastic. So there's no letter inside it, unfortunately, but, you know, it's still cool just to see that it was, you know, touched her fingertips and now it's at my house. (laughs) So, um, but the story does not have a happy ending. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's sad to say, but uh, to help American allies during World War II, she served with Britain's Air Transport Auxiliary, which was a service that helped fire, uh, helped ferries spitfires hurricanes and bombers all over great britain from factories to royal air force bases to aerodromes
0: are those types of airplanes
1: they are uh big ones i'm talking like the war machines of the day um she achieved the rank of a major in the Women's air force service pilots where she ferried planes and towed anti-aircraft targets for the u.s air force and for britain well britain and for america um her later job in World War II was to actually, uh, what they call paint fields, where they would uh, go, you remember, so this is a time period where there was electricity in an air field was non-existent, really. Uh, so you had some reflected type of things, mm. or just really bright white paint, or yellow paint, they painted on barns and locations along the way. And uh, you would have to try to, like, look down at, you know, out the side of your cockpit, and be like, oh, okay, we're, we're heading towards... Barnstormer. You know. yeah, exactly. And that's what she ended up doing eventually in life, right? But after World War II, work was pretty hard to come by. A 38-year-old was found dead in her apartment from a parent's suicide
0: in 1947. Do we know where this apartment yeah, was?
1: I do. Because that's the part of the story that gets a little strange. There's not, like I said before, there's not much that's written on who she even was. You know, even her Wikipedia page is very sparse. In fact, I should add a lot of stuff to the Wikipedia page. just So she has a more full biography, but I spent the time to, um, you know, track down through newspaper research, uh, archives throughout the entire United States, not just Pittsburgh, uh, also find her death certificate. I wrote and got her coroner's report. And uh, because over telling you all these accomplishments and all these cool things and her personality and, you know, just all these kind of things, it doesn't seem, it doesn't fit, you know, that she would kill herself. You know, now it, now you would say, you know, that didn't fit Robin Williams either. And you don't know really know what's going on.
0: Yeah, you never know what's happening in science. You never
1: know. However, there is indiscrepancies on her death. And let me explain. January 7th, the newspaper's first report, okay um, that she's found dead with an empty water tumbler beside her. She told her friends that she was contemplating suicide and uh, uh, one of the uh, detectives said that she's been despondent for a long time. okay that's what that's all that article really said that she was under the care of several doctors. okay, the following day in New York the, the New York Daily News, it says that she was found mysteriously dead at 7:30 p.m. That night, autopsy will be performed in a one-room furnished apart- apartment she was wearing at 40- 400 West 22nd Street. She was wearing a pink nightgown under the covers of a daybed near the window. Her face was discolored, and she might have been dead for a couple of days. Okay, they, they said she was last spoken to a previous Sunday afternoon. The following article, I find, says that also confirms that she was uh, p- perhaps dead for several days, also in- noted her endurance record of 237 hours up in the air, uh, which is crazy. But the same day in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph, right, says an autopsy revealed uh, revealed that there was no cause of death that could be determined. Uh, the medical examinator said that death had been induced by a general congestion of the organs and that the chemical analysis would have to be done to further find out. But it says that this time she was in a red and white Dotted polka dot pajamas, not a pink nightgown like the previous article said. It also said that her neighbor said that uh, she we knew that she's been a little bit under the weather, but we didn't know it was that bad. Uh, she apparently did visit her father that December of that same year. Had a kind of funny feeling that she wasn't going to see him again, and she did tell him that uh, apparently uh, when she you know was leaving Pittsburgh, uh, McKeesport, uh, where her family still lived. I mean, she has she never had any kids, but she has four older siblings who have yeah. all had kids, and, and some of them are still kind of around. The following day after that, a, pre, a preliminary report from the medical examiner claimed that she died of natural causes and not the suicide, which is linked to her uh, through most newspaper articles or uh, reports. Uh, so where did she die? In New York City. This time says that she was in a full pink nightgown again. Another person said that we know that she's been doctoring, but we didn't know how much, or that she's been sick. There's another quote that was mentioned in the newspaper. Also says that there's a quote that someone overheard her say years earlier that when a girl reaches 37, her flying days are done. She also told people that she was flying very little nowadays. Now it's the uh, funeral details, okay, we're coming back, and they had a little bit more of a investigation into the autopsy, now they changed their cause of death to general visceral congestion. Uh, the following... Visceral? Two, visceral congestion. Two days after that, okay, her body was brought back here to McKeesport. Four airplanes flew overhead, the funeral home. Uh, They said two poems at her funeral, at her eulogy, one called A Pilot's Halo by Don Blanding, another one called High Flight by John McGee. And she was buried in Versailles Cemetery under a tiny little marker, no bigger than this piece of paper I'm holding in my hand. uh, If you go to her grave, it says her name, Helen Ritchie. And then it says 1909, 1947. And that's it, nothing with no kind of you know, hurrah or memorial to her. Although there there was a park named in McKee's Park named after, her, named Helen Ritchie Park Memorial Park, which a lot of people had no idea who that park was named after because it's been named that for seventy years. Uh, the final thing I found was that um, on January twenty fourth, it was about two weeks after her death, that the uh, the chemical analysis of her autopsy finally came back, and says that it was primarily due to barbituric barbituric acid poisoning. They found that the amount in her brain uh, was 5.2 milligrams to 100 grams of brain tissue, which was very excessive for a person accustomed even to barbituric sedatives. An additional 46 milligrams of the barbituric acid was found in half her stomach, and the brain tissue showed showed four plus alcohol. But he did not know whether death was accidental or on purpose, because someone with that high level of a sleep sedative basically, yeah, uh, sleeping powder, uh, that was apparently she drank or somehow or ingested somehow, uh, even for somebody who was trying to, uh, or used to doing this, this was a, such a high abnormal amount that it was suspicious. And that's it, that's where the that story kind of ended with her was the fact that nobody knows how she died, uh, other than the fact that they saw her there, you know. Uh, the last thing I'll leave you with her is during the war. A good friend of her was quoted in the newspaper I found, which is kind of a cool quote. And she said that uh, Helen was a person who just loved people, uh, especially screwballs. And she had her best time wandering around London, falling in and out of strangers, and winding up in odd eating places with various brands of foreigners who would tell her wild and mysterious tales. My kind of chick, you know. Uh, this Helen Ritchie. I don't think I, we
0: say chick anymore. You know, well, okay. Your kind of lady. My
1: kind of lady, your woman, you know, someone I'd like to get to know. <laughs> this one, my kind of dame. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, fascinated by a photograph. That's how that story turned out uh, into this epic kind of story of a woman who was unlike anybody who I've ever heard of in aviation history. Um, and just that kind of fighting spirit only to be cut short so quick by mysterious death.
0: I wonder if the indiscrepancies about her, what she was wearing and everything are attributed to maybe just lack of information at the time, the way that if something happens today and right. it's instantaneous, we hear, you know, five people are hurt. Oh wait, it's seven. Oh wait, it's two. Oh wait, everything's okay.
1: Right. You'd think that. However, uh, now the AP stories would all be the same, you know? So cause they're all come from the AP, uh, which some of those were stories were other ones were like, kind of like follow-ups and things. But then some of the follow-ups went back to say pink night. The other ones were say red and white, mm. you know, Other ones were saying that she was on the daybed. Other ones saying that she wasn't on the (laughs) daybed. One saying that she 100% was a depressed woman and killed herself no matter what. She even told people that she's not going to live past 37. You know, uh, other people saying that she's the happiest woman I've ever met. Yeah. And there's no reason why she should have killed herself. Weird stuff. Her death just makes it that much more mysterious and fascinating and why I wanted to talk about her on the odd cast, you know. In life, man, we would have been best friends, you know. (laughs) I really feel like she was like a... Like just from that, I'm literally I'm, i was it was like that scene from somewhere in time. I'm like, I see that portrait on the wall, right? And I'm like, who is this woman? I need to know who this person is. What happened to her?
0: And then I find out all this. Well, it sounds like she would have been a, a large personality even today. Yeah, kind of famous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it, it just shows goes to show you that you don't really know who a person is just by uh, seeing them on the street or seeing them up in the air <laughs> or in a museum or anywhere, uh, you know, you don't really know who people are until you really kind of, uh, you know, just ask them. Uh, get to know people in a different way. Uh, well, then, and
0: you need to get out of your comfort zone, which right. I'm not good at. I'm not, I'm, I'll am i be the first to admit that that's not something that I can well, easily right. do, but it's something that I am trying to improve myself.
1: Well, with. yeah. I mean, even like uh, that Bob, uh, Bob Lansbury, you know, who people would think he was just a crazy guy you know on the streets in some ways you know you I guess you could say that he was but you know that that compelled one of our guests that we had on our show when we talked about the history of museums uh, to actually befriend the man and really find out who this guy even
0: was and thank God he did because (laughs) you know Bob has since passed he learned a lot about mr lansbury and now we know a little bit more
1: yeah and you know by finding that stuff out you find more stuff out about yourself you know through the process of discovering who this man is and and how you treat people the double x quaff drop man is no different somebody who you just recognize for 40 years of being this peg laid guy on the street you'd be like i had no idea you were uh yeah Yeah, that that guy uh, that guy's like insane stuff it really does pay to kind of like uh, ask questions. You know, don't be afraid to go up and talk to people and share your stories. And, and uh, you know, otherwise you'll be forgotten. I mean, these people were kind of forgotten. Uh, Helen Ritchie, thank God, is kind of having a little bit of a comeback in McKeesport at least, she's becoming kind of a uh, like a heroine. You know, uh, but she needs to be. Uh, that story really needs to be told on a national level more than anything else. And that uh, well, her...
0: well, you have you have names like Earhart and Lindbergh. And the Wright brothers. Mm -hmm. And those are three very important names. But there's also a lot of people that we don't talk about. And it's like Helen there is another name that did these things that are still like today insane to even try. The way that she would just cut the engine and then crank it back up again. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. I would never do that. No, I would never do that either. And, uh, you know, the fight for equality, you know,
1: in her story uh, is fascinating. Uh, someone should tell her story uh, in a different way, you know. That's um, what we just did. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> Continue to tell her story. Tell your friends. Find out. Look at all the photos. You know, those photos, you just type in Helen Ritchie San Diego, by the way, on Google. You're going to come across that San Diego public library where there's there's something like 50, 60 photos of her when she was younger and, and all throughout her aviation career. Uh, But she she was one heck of a woman and uh, one heck of a forgotten Pittsburgher, uh, one that I did not know who she was. Um, One of these people like a Jacob Gusky, you know, one of these people like a John Brashear, you know, these little forgotten figures, you know, who kind
0: of all fit back together. Jacob Um, Gusky, the Jewish Santa Claus. The Jewish Santa Claus. That's right. You
1: know, and uh, and all these little people. I mean, it's important to talk about these people. Um, You know, look at what they have accomplished. Look at what they did with their lives. And uh, how you stack up
0: to that, you know. <laughs> and- well, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, Latrobe's own Mr. Rogers. Right. Everybody is special. Right. And that's very true because because we don't necessarily pay attention to everybody, but... Everybody has a story, and these are some of the yeah, the and, ones yeah, that kind of come through the cracks.
1: Literally everybody has a story, you know, and that's the one thing you always got to remember. You know, always search for, uh, like we always say, you know, the, that you die the two deaths, you know. One is your natural death. The second is the last time someone speaks your name. And uh, that's what we do here is we speak these people's names. At least let's uh, think about Helen Ritchie for a couple minutes. You know, Helen Ritchie is going to get more thought of Than any time since 1937 or 1947, when she passed away, people will be thinking about her now more so than any other time in history before this, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's kind of sad, you know. But
0: But it's also awesome. It is also awesome. (laughs) It's it's the perfect opportunity. So, and if you have any of those people that you think it was, if it was your grandmother, right, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, let us know. Send John a message. Odd Pittsburgh at gmail.com
1: that's right i mean i get messages uh, all the time it was when i just got in fact while we were recording this from a, a girl a, a woman named uh, laura and and uh you know interested about a story about coal mines you know or the mining industry in pittsburgh or you know natural gas you know who knows whatever it is message me uh you know get a hold of us we will look at every single thing you know every single question we will get back to answering questions because i do have a lot my New Year's resolution.
0: We're gonna do that. Go back to, and then,
1: to answer, I literally have fifty unread messages. Fifty. I got five today. You know, um, you know, all and a lot of these things are kind of like my uncle used to own a candy shop in nineteen twenty-eight in Verona. You know, can That's you? It's amazing.
0: I'd love to learn about that.
1: Well, I I would like to learn about that, but like uh, a lot of questions are kind of like that. Or hey, no, for- I, I I remember horns. Do you? You know, <laughs> it's, of course I do. And uh, but we could talk about those types of things. You know, Pittsburgh department stores. Whatever it is. And uh, without further ado, that's, that's it, it for Pitt. Pitt.